0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: Hey, hey, before we get going, quick word from our sponsor, lynda.com. Uh, it's a new year, and uh, new years are a good time to improve yourself. Uh, lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, but they also have cool stuff like how to use GarageBand to make a podcast or. Uh, Uh, creating websites in HTML5, uh, JavaScript for web designers. They have all kinds of stuff, including the core basic meat and potatoes, Excel, WordPress, Photoshop. Learn about photography. Um, Whether you're looking to set some new financial goals, find a work-life balance, or just pick up a cool new hobby, lynda.com has the class for you. And... If you're listening to the show, we've got a 10-day free trial for you that you can get by visiting Linda. That's L Y N D A dot com slash longform. That'll get you access to everything on Linda, even if you're on your phone. Plus, they're adding new courses every week. So you should really sign up today. Give one of these classes a try. They are addictive and you can get them all for free right now. Lynda.com slash longform. Thanks for sponsoring us. Here we are with the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm
2: Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I've got Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer here right now. They're from Longform. Uh, they're the co-hosts of the Longform Podcast.
1: Yeah. Hey, RR. I like I to explain we... things for new, if there's any new listeners out there. You're a man of context. Yeah. You believe in context. I think we got to get our chemistry back. Our chemistry has been off the last couple intros. Have you guys noticed that? Something feels a little weird? So, there's like, uh, an awkward air in the room? Yeah. Yeah. might be me. <laughs> Do you know what it is? Is, it like, is something bothering you? It's a smell.
2: <laughs> uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Taffy brodesser uh whose byline you may recognize is very recognizable. Uh, she's a contributor to both GQ and the New York Times Magazine, and she's also written for every publication in existence in the last 18 months. She's written for an incredible list of publications, and she's also really a really fascinating person.
1: She's been on our list for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I was excited to get her on. She also, I feel like uh, we should let like, prospective podcast guests know that Taffy came in with gluten-free cupcakes for Evan. I As know. a winner. I know.
2: Yeah. It changed the whole complexion of the interview. If you, if you don't want interview. one of
1: those classic, rat lift hard-hitting interviews, <laughs> yeah. come with the cupcakes. Come, come with that softness. <laughs> what, what about sponsors this week? Uh, Well, there's one sponsor who, if you want to put some cupcakes out into the world, you're going to need a newsletter. Best way to get a newsletter, it's with Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. Uh, You could let people know what you're up to, you could let them know what you're watching, what you're reading, what podcasts you listen to. Put it all on a Tiny Letter. Thanks, Tiny Letter. Someone should really start a Tiny Letter called, come with that softness. (laughs) Cupcakes. Uh, But for now, here's Evan with Taffy. Welcome
2: to the podcast. And thank you so much. It's yeah.
0: such a pleasure to be here.
2: I wrote down this list of the places where you have published stories in the last year. Just uh-huh. the last year. Okay. Matter. Yes. Three features. Yes. Playboy. Allure. The New York Times Magazine. Several like interviews, features. GQ. Town and Country. New York. Women's Health. Good Housekeeping. Cosmo. Dame. Spirit, which is the Southwest uh, in-flight magazine. It is. Uh, Ladies Home Journal. Fast Company. Yes. And if you add in like another two months, you also get Lucky and The Hollywood Reporter.
0: Yes, I did that. I have
2: never seen anything. The closest thing I can remember is Brendan Kerner used to be used to have like 10 things going at once. And before I even knew him, other freelancers and I talked about whether there was more than one Brendan Kerner. And he was actually (gasps) like a factory that like created content under the name Brendan Kerner. Maybe
0: I'm doing that. Are you doing that? I have just like a team of people who are writing in my name. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, but I'm, I, I am curious. I, I kind of want to go back and hear about your career first, okay. to to then get to like how that kind of year happens. Okay. I know you went to NYU. I did. Um, you grew up in the East Coast?
0: I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. I grew up in, in these parts before it looked like this and before people like you wanted to be here. Yeah, probably so. Um, t- I grew t- up in a sort of, of dystopic Canarsie. Oh, yeah. And also Flatbush. We lived in two places, not at the same time, Canarsie and Flatbush. And the Flatbush part is a part that people are moving to now. yeah. It was very um like pathetic to be from there. It was very low class and and Canarsie still I think canarse like defies any gentrification, <laughs> any Starbucks attempt, any like it, it's it's not getting you know, but in Flatbush, like the shithole I grew up in Flatbush, they're like making artisanal cheese out of it now. So
2: Oh really? So that's good yeah, you don't hear about Canarsie that much. Canarsie is still a place that old older people are from, like...
0: It is, and it's because of the um, the trains. They're the only train that goes there. It's the last stop on the L, and you have to take a bus. And it used to be that the L came every, like, three hours, and then... When I was growing up, people were saying that Williamsburg was going to be the next Soho. And we would laugh and laugh and laugh, which is why I don't own property and have good investments. And and then it did. It became this place. But yeah. then I got to tell you, if you want to know the Brooklyn I grew up in, be the last person on the L. Go to 105th Street. Just keep Because you're not the last person. Yeah. There's a guy on the train. <laughs> and uh, he'll sit closer to you than, than is necessary.
2: Were you like a precocious like little journalist Kids who wanted to get into journalism, or or where like where along the line did you?
0: Did I become a journalist? Become a journalist. So I wanted. I always wanted to be a writer. In a way. I always wanted to be a sort of thing that I saw. Like, I remember watching Who's the Boss and wanting to be an advertising executive, like a divorced advertising executive in Connecticut. Like, I I would want to. And then one day it hit me. No, I just want to write about all the things. I Uh I want to sort of spend time in every world and never actually be of of that and yeah. that that left me being a writer but i was always writing and i was always like doing creative things in the place that i was allowed to meaning like i was on the school newspaper yeah but i hear about people on the school newspaper who wrote news and i just would write um strange stories and nobody liked them like nobody ever looked at me and was like you you Someday I'm going to know you. Someday someone's going to read you a list of everything you did in the last year. Instead, like, everyone said I was terrible at it. I mean, I, I in high school, I would write people's college essays for them. Uh-huh. And this English teacher of mine, whom I dedicate every fucking story to, came... Came to me and said, it's not just that this is unethical. It's that you're not that good at it. Whoa. Yeah. And it was not ethical. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's both.
2: about the first one. <laughs> it could be both. And clearly that has stuck with you to this day.
0: I mean, yes. I guess,
2: how could it not? So, so then, but did you study it? Did you study writing?
0: Yeah, I went to screenwriting school. Oh. I went to school to be a screenwriter. And then at NYU, they would put you in a room and they would say, like, you are elite all 14 of you whose parents agreed to this. Uh-huh. Uh, you are this elite group and you are going to be big someday. And there was no real career center. There is now, which I, I don't know what they do with you yeah. at the career center, but it was like right before the internet. Like in my senior year, they tried to give me um, an email address and I was like, oh, you're a, i I don't think I'll be needing this. Um, and so I, I left and you would still look in the New York Times for a job. Yeah. And there were just no screenwriting jobs, yeah. which was pretty surprising to me because I, I, I don't know. I'm constantly surprised by things that are obvious to other people. And I found this job listing. It was very big um, for a magazine called Soaps in Depth.
2: Soaps, um, in the depth. TV or the or the product?
0: No, the TV, the uh-huh. t- like. And I had this roommate in college who loved Days of Our Lives, and we would watch it together. So I went for this job interview. It was in at Bauer Publishing in New Jersey, and they gave me the job. And I thought it would be hilarious. I thought we would have so much fun, but but we didn't. It was people who were who had gone to journalism school to do this, and they were they they treated it like News. You couldn't tell all the news. You could only, you know, fans only want to hear news that's good. Like, you could find out that an actor was gay, but you would never say it because that would ruin everything because of his love scene. Like, it was, there was something about it. And I never really fit in. And then after a year, I got poached. By a bigger soap opera magazine. Get the fuck
1: out!
2: What?
0: Well, when I say bigger, <laughs> keep in mind, I mean larger. I Are mean you that it was. I mean, like it was a larger, larger like, format. Larger. It was like bigger in page. Oh,
2: so the soaps today was like a like soaps a, in depth. Soaps in depth. Excuse me. Was like a more of a Reader's Digest
0: size. It was more of a soap opera digest size. Right. And this was now soap opera weekly. Mm-hmm. And I was there for a long time a year in my, which was a long time yeah. for me and I was laid off on on June 5th 2001 but later I would let people assume that it was a post 9-11 layoff because it was so embarrassing. When when they laid me off, they said that, you know, this was a budget issue. Yeah. And so I explained to them how if they just withdrew the free soda program, they could probably make up my salary easily. And I thought maybe this was like a brainstorm, <laughs> but they were firing me. And they said-
2: Like they called you in and you were like, well, I have ideas yeah. for I'm like, saving great. money. I'm
0: like, thank you for asking.
2: <laughs> they they said, we, we actually have ideas yeah. for saving money and they involve you not working here. And
0: also for our happiness. They thought- I lacked a real commitment to soap operas is that true I thought I was doing a good job I,
2: do you find yourself to be very knowledgeable in soap operas now more now than I the am average ask person
0: me, ask me anything I still can watch a law and order episode and name the last seven roles the killer had on daytime television <laughs> um, I can't quite remember the names of the last three people I've met in general, but, but so that, that stays with me. That I feel like I can remember
2: stuff from being homesick and watching things with my mom. Uh, yeah, like, as the world turns, and uh...
0: they didn't like me there, and they gave me, they gave me two shows to cover at the first one that were on at the same time, and this was pre-DVR, so it was a mean thing to do that you had to cover these two shows that went on at the same time, and I had to um, watch them on the weekends, and it was. <laughs> It was excruciating. But do
2: you do you is there any way in which you look back on this now and say, like that was great training for uh, for something? like I, I learned something, or was it just sort of like it
0: was humiliating. <laughs> it was just humiliating. And people, my parents could never get the name of where I worked, right? And but I was very proud because i was I had left school and I was a working writer. yeah, And I also liked what I learned from there. okay. i'll'll I'll do this. Yeah. What I learned from there is that, like, it is okay to double down on the thing that you're interested in. And that's helped me now, I think, that mm-hmm. like having seen people who were so so into what they were into and doing it with such like excitement and passion and vigor, like that's how you know, I people there's some people who think that some of the story I, stories I do are silly and I I don't think so. I don't feel embarrassed about it and maybe maybe there's something there. I'm I'm reaching. Yeah, no, (laughs) I
2: I, I, I could buy that.
0: There's something that um, makes me very emotional when I see um, people doing the thing that they love. A lot of my stories I'm drawn to because the person that I'm writing about or the people I'm writing about are so into what they're doing. And it's something I would never be, I would never have known was a thing you could be into, either professional, I don't know. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, How do you recover from getting laid off from the soaps? Uh, Weekly.
0: So um, 9-11 happens. And then everyone's laid off. And so you're just another one of them. So you only had like four or five months where it was horrible and embarrassing because there was like a boom. What? You don't have a job? Yeah. And I kept thinking, like, now I can't really get another job because all I've done is work at soap opera magazines. But I do like writing for these magazines. And I thought, maybe I'll freelance. And then I went to a party, a media bistro party cuz those were just starting up.
2: I remember that, yeah.
0: And I thought this was this is a am- I love this thing. I'm like a big um like let's put on a show sort of joiner type. And I and I met Laurel Toby who who is the founder and I said I want to work for you. And she arranged she arranged a lunch for me. This was right before 9/11 because my interview with her was on 9/11 uh-huh. and I was on the BQE. Uh-huh. Because when you're from that part of Brooklyn, it, you just drive into the city. Huh. And I watched the planes go into the towers and I called immediately I, the, after the first plane. And I called her and I said, you know what? A plane just flew into the Twin Towers. There's terrible traffic. I think it's not. I'm not going to be able to see you. And I could tell that she thought that this was just like me blowing off an interview, uh, but then the second plane hit, and no she didn't even, you know, no one. Yeah. And then I went, and I had um a couple of weeks later, we rescheduled in a changed world and and she hired me. And I helped start up the classes program. Uh-huh. I did it in exchange for an unlimited metro card and a desk uh-huh. because I also wanted a place to work,
2: yeah, to freelance from,
0: yeah. And it took off, and it was just—it was amazing. It, it took off, and I became—I became, I became a, a director of education. Me, me, yeah. a director of education.
2: And it was spreading to the other cities.
0: And yeah, and I did. I I went to cities, and I launched things, and I was there while it became a comp- a real live company. And then I was in Los Angeles hiring teachers. And I met the guy I ended up marrying, uh-huh. and he was one of our teachers. Oh, wow. And I wanted to start the L.A. office. And I don't know if any... We always like kind of had talked about it, but I think it was an act of real generosity that they said, yes, go start the L.A. office. And I did. And by then, we were just so... I felt so obligated to the company that I felt like I... I couldn't leave, mm-hmm. even though it felt like time to leave. But then um, I got pregnant, and I felt like this is an elegant exit, this, yeah. like, I'm going to leave with this baby and not come back. And then when I was in my seventh month, um, the company sold. And suddenly I um, I became like a, a dot-com thousandaire, like a low thousands. <laughs> and I thought, this is good, I'm going to stay home with my baby and see how that works out. And I had this great baby. and. And I sat on all these floors sitting, singing songs, and I itsy-bitsy spidered, and I changed yeah. diapers. And 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 I had like this ennui of like, is this what it's going to be like? And when he leaves, who will I sit on the floor with? Like all I could see was him leaving. And I thought He's I should start. He's just a baby. He's just a baby. <laughs> He's just a baby. And all I could think is like, it's time for me to start doing something else. So when he was one year old, I put him in with a babysitter three mornings a week. Uh And I started, I went back to writing screenplays. So while you're
2: working at Media Bistro, did that end up becoming such a full-time thing that you did not end up writing? So
0: full-time. So
2: you were not freelancing. I was not
0: freelancing. I did not do one thing. But I learned so much. And I think, by the way, that, that the success I had when I started my freelancing career on the day he, right after that, attempted a screenplay and then a personal essay. It was a personal essay that did it. Uh-huh. I was never afraid of editors the way I see that people are afraid of editors, that, they're, that they debate, like, what, what should your sign-off be and what time should you pitch? Right, um, right. I'm, I was never afraid because I saw editors from my time at Media Bistro as people who really wanted like who wanted ideas? Yeah. who needed ideas and luck, you're in luck. I am an idea vendor, and <laughs> I have some ideas for you. Tell me if you would like them. I never took no's personally. I was sort of like this dumb smiling, like, okay, I'll come right back and give like, well, what about this and what about this? But it, it, to tell it in a in a linear sense, for my son's one year birthday, my mother, came from New York to uh-huh. stay with us and let us go away for our first night ever. Yeah. And we went away and we went to see a movie. And I don't remember what the movie was, but before the movie, there was a coming attraction, And it was for a movie that was directed by my writing partner in college.
2: At NYU. At NYU. Uh Peter
0: Sallett is his name. And he's gone on to great things. And that Uh was a great movie. It was Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist that he directed. I I I didn't know what movie I was seeing at the time because all I could see was how old I had gotten and how my writing career was something that was always about to happen just as soon as the baby falls asleep, just as soon as um, I I finish watching this five-hour bout of As the World Turns, just, you know, this was going to happen. And suddenly I understood how old I was, which was 32. And that's the answer to your question. It's like, what do you do when you realize, A, your mortality, which by the way, having a baby (laughs) is like big on, and B, that you have not been doing the thing that you were going to do and someone else has. You would no longer be like a young upstart. You are no longer someone who would be like, look at her, how precocious, how amazing. Like no, you're in your 30s. Get to work. And people your age, their name is like up on the screen. On the screen, yeah. and I could not see anything. I just was like this wild, bug-eyed, yeah. like shaking. And my husband kept whispering to me, like, "Is everything okay? Do you need to pump?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I, I, I'll tell you later." I need to write. <laughs> I need to write. Give I need me to your, pump words. Give me, give me a pencil. <laughs> um, but he's used to sort of. Bouts of high emotionality from me. So,
2: so then you tried to write the screenplay, or you had already. Then I tried to
0: write, write the screenplay, and I wrote a screenplay called School Slut mm. that was, I thought, very good. And a couple of agents thought was not great, but very good. Mm-hmm. And then this movie called Easy A came out, which was almost exactly the same. I'm not. It, it was not. I don't accuse people of stealing anything. Right. But it was this movie that I remember taking my child to and like crying over because like I tried to do that like I I loved this screenplay uh. and this was almost the same plot and it had the same sort of sensibility to it and I sat in this movie crying and and a lot of women were in movies crying at the time. Like, there are movies you could take your baby to. And a lot of women are just crying. And it's cool.
2: Yeah, but you were crying for a reason. I was crying for, for
0: good, not just hormones. <laughs> it was like my irrelevance. It was my failure. It was everything. I'm never easy on my, I, I never take anything with a grain of salt. It
2: doesn't sound like No, it, no. I'm not good but at that. But so then you you got, the per, a personal essay was the thing.
0: So I wrote this personal essay about the fact that before I got pregnant, I started doing yoga. I was like in L.A. and I was going to do yoga. And I did yoga and I got really good at it. And then I gained like thousands of pounds when I was pregnant. But I went back to yoga mm-hmm. and I was so proud of myself. And now every time I did something like simple, you'd stand up tall or you'd raise your head, like whatever the simplest thing was, an instructor would say to me, I love your spirit. <laughs> good for you for showing up. Like, And it was class after class after class. So I wrote this story about what it's like to be treated like that and how you're sort of always starting over. Like there's nothing you ever get good enough at that you're not still starting over about. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this essay and I sent it to... I sent it to Paula Darrow, who was at Self at the time, Mm -hmm. and she took like a month or so to read it, even though I followed up every day, and she very gently told me that that's not a thing to do. Like, maybe every few days, maybe I'll let you know when I've read it. She was was wonderful. Uh, She was a wonderful first person to teach me those things. Um, And then she wrote back one day and said, I really like this. I'm sending it to the editor-in-chief. And... As that was going on, my husband was laid off. It was like the post two thousand eight. He was at Adage. He was the bureau chief, the LA bureau chief at Adage, and he was laid off. Uh-huh. So I had to I had to start looking for work. It was time for me to start looking for work, and like I hadn't sold a screenplay. And then one day, when we were just like having a meeting about like what was going to happen, like.
2: Family finances.
0: Yeah, like, let's sit down with this computer and and talk about numbers. We were interrupted by the phone call saying that they were going to buy it. And I couldn't believe it. And they were going to pay me $3 a word. That's wild. And I started just, like, crying. I was like, yes, that sounds acceptable. You know, is that acceptable to you? Yes, that is acceptable to gone me. could have
2: 350
0: I I could have. I could have. I could have. But I think maybe... Um, you're right. I've, now I have regrets. Now I have regrets. Um, no, that's why I was the ticket. But um, I did. I took it and I said, this this is going to work. And so I was sort of – that's how I got fast. I was racing against time to support my family via personal essay writing, which now when I say it sounds insane. But I guess I was like, I didn't want to go back to an office and make someone else a millionaire. Yeah. The people at Media Bistro who got huge amounts of money – deserved it. They took a chance and they were good to me and I loved it there. And also everything I have is from there. My career is from there. My husband is from there. A lot of my friends are from there. But I didn't just want to go back to an office. And also I had this child and I didn't want to always have to leave for the Halloween parade. And I didn't want to leave because he's sick and the babysitter didn't show up. And it's true, by the way, that, you know, currently right now I'm being extorted by my babysitter. You you saw that on Twitter. You are hostage (laughs) to these people. Like you think you're so successful and what you don't know is that I am hostage to a girl who wants $2 more an hour and I'm like what's and it's not that I'm being ch- I would give her $5 more an hour but like then when's the next negotiation and how dare she ask so soon after being hired and how dare she put my children through this and it makes you insane so you didn't totally avoid it is what you're saying I did not when the first
2: thing you sell is a personal essay and then you say okay I can do this, right? Did you feel like, well, there's enough shit happening in my life that I got I got material for th- hundreds of stories, or like I need to go do some stuff?
0: Never, I never had to do anything. Huh. I was able to. I became like an, an a personal essay idea machine, where I could drive down the street and be like, this drive better yield something. Like I had so many thoughts that I now realized could be personal essays, and I was quick about it. I'd write them in one sitting because uh-huh. I wanted to get to the point. I had. Breathing down my neck, the hot breath of my husband couldn't find another job because it was that it was two thousand nine. Yeah, it was the worst possible time, and I didn't want to go back to work. And also, there was Peter Sollett's name on the marquee, and I, I, the movie had come out, and I had seen it, and I'd cried through that too. I needed to make my mark, and I needed to not have a job that slid me down because now I had a child. So all my remaining time would be left for him, right? And then one day. I like was not interested in myself anymore. I was like sick of myself, and I'd become someone that women's magazines would reach out to for body image stories, like a lot of body image stories. And uh-huh. and like I remember one day I described my midriff as a top- topographical map of Sarajevo, like just post baby like <laughs> C section scar <laughs> stretch marks, it's horrible. That's-
2: it was good enough. It's good.
0: But I also looked at my body and I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like you're fine. I'm going to write about something else. And then I got pregnant again. And I pitched this idea To another editor itself, someone I knew through Media Bistro, her name is Sarah Austin, and she played on our basketball league that I formed. I had a basketball league. She was the health editor itself, and I pitched her this idea. I had this, like, disastrous delivery the first time, so now I wanted to know, like, should I be one of those weird, like, hippies in the woods giving birth mm-hmm. should I be home birthing should I be you know and so I went on this you know what what is called the journey to find it out I interviewed my Bialik I, I like I did I made all the rounds and I wrote this story that had this like romantic tension of like here I am pregnant I don't know how this ends what do I do to this day people write to me about that story people who have had traumatic births mm-hmm. they all want to know how the second one went hmm. And I say it, it's fine. It was great, and it was.
2: It worked out great. It worked out great. Was that the first time that you that you added in this element of going and interviewing people? Yeah,
0: this was my first. I thought of it as a reported essay, but now I realize it's just like it was a big health feature with a with a strong first person aspect. Right. And after that, I realized that like I had learned so much from writing about myself that I could now apply these skills to other people and write about other people. But I spent some time after that story. Writing a little bit about birth. And people came to me and wanted me to do books about birth. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever want to be someone who just writes a, a, about one thing. Right. And certainly I don't want to be the person who writes about birth. Like, if you're the sad birth lady with your pastel cover colored um, book cover and you're going around and you're speaking about it, you, no one ever says, like, you know, you should write a Shouts and Murmurs. No one ever is like, hey, you seem like, uh, like we can send you on a celebrity interview. So at that point... With with all of those requests coming in, I became desperate to to diversify and just write about all these different things that were interesting to me. And I and I vowed never to I will never write about anything that I don't want to write about. Which it, which eighty percent has been true. Yeah. Because a lot of times I write things for editors that I love, like Sarah Austin. Like those are people who can literally call me up and ask me to write about anything,
2: and you'll you'll do it because you like working with them, or you do it out of loyalty.
0: Loyalty. Pick up the March Cosmo, and you'll you'll she's at Cosmo now, and you'll see what I'm talking about. That I'll do anything for for the right editor.
2: I'm ask you about some uh, Cosmo work, but did you did, just as a microcosm of the sort of like if I write a birth book, I will be the birth book person. Did you actually think? wait, I'm becoming the personal essay person and I'm going to be stuck being the personal essay person? Or did yeah. you think like, if I want to do something else, now I got to do something else?
0: I didn't know it at the time, but suddenly people were asking me about motherhood essays. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't want to put my kids through the ringer of my doubts and like the existentialism. I've since let that go as my later work shows, but um, <laughs> I didn't want them looking back and being like, oh, did you have doubts that you should be Giving birth to me, do you have uh, doubts? Right. And also, the people who read those essays, you get you get pigeonholed as a mother, very very quickly. Um, you become somebody who who fits in this Venn diagram of writer and mother, and then there is a place for you on the internet. And those that's real. People keep asking you for this stuff, and it's really easy to stay on that. But I found I found writing about parenting so boring. Huh. I felt like there are certain hours a day that are about parenting. And in the early days, those weren't so fascinating either, right? Those were like, like I could not believe how your whole life... You work toward this independence, and finally, when you get to the peak of it, you let it all go away, and suddenly you're never going to a movie. I'm sorry. I know that this is this might be tough for you, um, but suddenly, like everything, is a decision that is four steps. And I have a seven year old and a four year old. If you look in that purse, you will see you will see boys' underwear of so many different sizes. You will see so much just in caseness. It's humiliating like if my if i'm at an interview and my tape recorder has gone to the bottom the things i take out and put on the table like sort of neutralize any intimidation factor i had coming from whatever magazine i'm coming from
2: so when was the first time that you you sort of got one of these you know, reported assignments that were sort of did break out of that because now uh, that. you've done you know what a I huge number of them in a very short period of time. Or w- like, when was this? Was this just a couple of years ago?
0: Yeah, I've, I've only been doing this five years. Yeah. My freelancing anniversary is November 29th of whatever five years ago is 2009. That's right. crazy. Yeah.
2: I mean, this would be a good time to point out that you are a contributing, you contributor to the New York Times Magazine and GQ. <laughs> yes. I don't even know anyone else that has both like two gigs like that.
0: Right. It was a tough negotiation, but it was fine.
2: When you said, like, okay, now I'm going to do this other kind of thing, how did you approach that?
0: This is what happened. There was a personal essay I wanted to write about As the World Turns had been canceled. I got very good at this idea of noticing when something is very pertinent to you. Like, wait, I have something to say about that. Hmm. Like Noticing that you're noticing that you have something to say about something. And that, I think, is the skill. Like, to know that you have something to say and then you figure out why you want to say it or what the emotion behind wanting to say it is. I wanted to talk about how I knew all these actors because you would go out to lunch. You'd be on this beat. Uh So I knew all these As the World Turns actors and it was very sad that they were now out of work. But I also remembered the time over lunch where they would whisper to me that, like, God, they thought they'd be doing movies by now or they thought mm-hmm. they'd be doing primetime. And instead, they're playing this, like, one heroic cop character for years. And they have mixed feelings about it because it gave them a house in in Montclair mm-hmm. and stability. And what actor has that? And how do you say no to that? And it was the same emotion I had about writing for the mm-hmm. soap opera magazines, I wrote about it for the Daily Beast, Uh for Kate Arthur, and it got a lot of mean attention from the soap opera magazines. They tweeted it out and they were like, let's go tell Taffy, in quotes, because they hadn't called me Stephanie, exactly how we feel about this or something. And the comment section, you should see it. They like like, marshaled
2: their readers to come after you? Yes.
0: Yes. It was horrible. There was this one note, and that's when I stopped reading one comment that said, Stephanie, you weren't a good writer then, and you certainly aren't one now. And I called my mother. You're 11th grade English teacher. Yeah, was, no, it was like, it, it cahoots with one of the editors from from the soap his like um handle was Soap Man or something, um, which is as creative as that, that group got. And it was so horrible and humiliating, and it was this moment of like, like i I guess it's always going to hurt to write about yourself, but this was a moment where like the personal essays stopped being about my body and my and motherhood. I was almost irrelevant in the story uh-huh. i was all and 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 I think that that's a thing that i've that I still am is like I'm there in the story and I'm completely irrelevant. I'm just delivering you this thought I have about the subject mm-hmm. It's not really about me anymore like it never went through well. You know, you never got the backstory on uh, how what soap operas meant to me or anything. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. And that that feels like a lot of these stories you've been been doing in the last year, you're always in there. Like if you're doing like you did this Nicki Minaj story (laughs) for someone who's not like a big Nicki Minaj fan, it was totally fascinating because you didn't talk about whether or not you cared about her or like your relationship with the music or anything like that. But you were in there. It was a little bit meta in that there's a little bit of like how a magazine story gets made right. in there. I feel like right. where you're like the, I mean, the sort of like famous scene that people talked about a lot was like she was falling asleep. Yeah,
0: I mean, who else were you going to write about in that story? <laughs> I was the only one awake in the room. Like,
2: so you're basically like, I have to make something here.
0: <laughs> that was a very terrifying story for me. Really? Yeah, this was my my shot. I was offered this story. I'd been trying to get a bigger story in GQ, uh-huh. and they had assigned me two of them. When I started out freelancing, all I wanted to do was write for the New York Times Magazine and for GQ. The, the, that was my stated goal. And Oprah. Oprah if yeah. I could write for those places once, then I will be a happy person. Lauren Banz, who is wonderful, was a, was a GQ editor. And she knew me and she sent me, she suggested me for a Weird Al interview mm-hmm. in LA. And I had a lot of value for being in LA and being um someone who could be sent but that wasn't my first celebrity thing my first celebrity thing was given to me by my Playboy editor, who'd known me since my Media Bistro days, and we were friends and friends. And over lunch, every few months, I would just pitch him, uh-huh. Steve Randall. He's still a dear friend. Um, and one of the hardest things about signing the GQ contract was knowing I couldn't. Oh, they
2: have a um, no uh, yeah. Playboy you can't thing? write for another
0: men's magazine. Uh-huh. And we'd still have lunch, and we. But it was that was the hardest part for me. Um, there were no other hard parts, by the way. <laughs> um, that I that I That was a same day sign. That was like I'll read that contract Very later. Trying. Yeah. Um,
2: the Playboy thing. The Playboy thing. So the, thing. it was
0: Kristen Ritter, and then they they sent me to Weird Al, and I got the and they kept giving me these little things to do, and I'm terrible at little things. I'm not dismissive of them. I just can. I'm just not concise. I'm just uh-huh. not quippy, um, and I don't think my word choices lend well to that. Like I'm not. Um, exuberant in my word choices. Um, one of my editors once changed, I was describing Mads Mickelson's jaw for a small thing for GQ, like, I, I, like an idiot. I described it as a strong jaw. And my editor there, Devin Gordon, changed it to preposterous jaw. And I was like, yes, how could I not know that? And it like, it like hurt me that I hadn't thought to use a word when you have 300 words and you're like strong jaw. Here's your strong jaw. Yeah, like take that thesaurus out and go crazy. Um, And then on the week that I was moving, my husband wanted badly to work in politics. And I wanted to live on the East Coast again. And he Got this job offer at the Star Ledger. This was in August, mm-hmm. and the week we were moving, I, I get this email from from Devon Gordon saying we'd like you to try the Nicki Minaj story, and it was the week I was moving, and I had two children, and I had six stories I was on deadline for, six and I said at yes. The same time, I'm never less than nine. I'm really le- never less than nine. It's not a good way to live, uh, listener. <laughs> um, and my children call me by my first name, and and
2: looking at like all those places in a year, I wondered how much of this is you love writing a lot, how much of it is like financial anxiety or financial requirement? Because I also noticed you were like teaching a class in there. I was. That was financial anxiety. That's financial.
0: The teaching was that the classes would give me money as soon as I needed it. (laughs) Ah. I'd be paid immediately. Whereas... I mean, you, you know what it's like to get a freelance check. And you don't want to ever look desperate. Because I think that gives an anxiety to the editor that people who get paychecks never have to talk about how much they need the money. Right. So I just didn't want to be in a position where I had to take work that I didn't want to do. So I taught. And also, teaching made me better at um, being able to figure out what I was doing right and wrong in my own stories. Hmm. But it was a big burden. And I was my throat hurt all the time. And I couldn't... Um, you know, I didn't read stories to my children because my throat hurt all the. You know, it was it was, a, it, was it was sad. It was a rough time, and the, my mark of achievement is that I've stopped teaching, and I'm very happy to have stopped teaching for the until I am desperate for money again.
2: But uh, luckily, I have I have a lot of work. So then you get this assignment. You're moving across country. They just say go to the Barclay Center and like. No, they sit say down. we
0: want you to do Nicki Minaj. Yeah. And it was supposed to be in L. A. And who who knew where it'd be? It was Nicki Minaj. Who knew what was going to happen? And I was sitting, I was on a plane to Vegas when I got this email and I couldn't believe I was getting like a big profile and I was so excited. And the guy next to me on the plane said, you have to do that. And I said, but I'm moving. And he said, you are going to regret it if you don't do it.
2: Stranger on a plane? Yeah,
0: stranger, like lifetime movie style. Like who was that man? Was it
2: that screenwriter guy that you went to college with? No, it
0: wasn't. It wasn't. (laughs) But I think that later if I had asked. Like at Virgin, like who is the person next to me? They'd be like, "That seat was empty" or something. <laughs> um, and I and I got off the phone. I got off the plane, and I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And then I waited a really, really long time, because that's what you do with pop stars, not actors yeah. so much, but pop stars. I describe waiting for my Nicki Minaj interview as being the next on an organ donation list, but like with a blowout and Spanx. Like, you just have to be dressed. <laughs> and one day a car is going to pull up and you're going to get in and it's going to take you to the, to the Nicki Minaj. <laughs> and you're going to interview the Nicki Minaj. And it was really hard to get her to agree to do anything, to get her to agree to a certain amount of time. Yeah. And finally it happened and it was the Barclays Center and it was like now or never, everyone was getting very impatient. And I had given up so many hours of research. I wasn't so familiar with her to do this. And I, I, like, I was going to do this. This was my shot. I was going to do this. So I'm, so I'm taken to the, to the Nicki Minaj at uh-huh. the Barclays Center. And I'm put into this very hot room. And I wait even longer. And then she falls asleep. And all I could think is, you are not blowing this for me. This is my this is my <laughs> shot. And you know what? It's not her. It's not her job to make my story interesting. You know, like people talk about, like, oh, she's going to be boring, or oh, not sh- not Nicki Minaj, but like, like someone's going to be is. boring. Yeah. But it's not their job to be interesting. It's your job to be interesting. You're the one telling the story. You can't you can't cede control of your story to somebody else. That's not a that's not a good thing to do. You should always have a larger cultural context. For why this story is interesting, but I was sweating. I may have like teared up a few times with anxiety. Um, she had her back to me while she was while she was awake a little bit because she was upset about something. Yeah, and she wasn't forthcoming. I mean, you can read in the interview. There yeah, is no moment really where she to was to like, tell you anything? I'm so glad you're here. Let me yeah. tell you everything." <laughs> <laughs> and um, I left, and I debated: Do I call them and tell her? tell them that she fell asleep and will they will they pull it just like first you make us wait and now we have to now we have it uh, and I sat down that night and I wrote what I thought was this terrible terrible I really did think it was this terrible story and I sent it to
2: also you, you wrote it in one night
0: yeah I do that that's yeah. what I that's what I do that's I mean I know that's what I do no like I I don't have enough time and I don't have a good enough memory to not write things very quickly like I have to get it all down so I, I try to write things in one sitting, although wow. most of the time I think, think, think and then write it.
2: So you're not you're not sort of thinking out the structure as you're going. You actually when by the time you sit down, you feel like you know what you want to do with it.
0: I always know what the third part is, like the point point. and everything else is built around that. And the point with her is like, you'd be tired, too. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to write a story about like this lazy, horrible woman who falls asleep while she's talking to me. That's how I think of profiles It's like this your job is to explain this person to the audience. Mm-hmm. It's not you and them in the story. It's like you are their advocate almost. That's how I think of it.
2: And also I, this interested me in the um in the one that was more recent the guy whose name I can't remember but he's the bachelor guy.
0: Chris Harrison.
2: Chris Harrison, yeah. And I, and I that I love that story because I have absolutely zero interest in that. Uh, that person at all, and I was st- I was totally riveted by this idea of like the man who's on The Bachelor, who's like the host, is also a bachelor, also a bachelor, and, like, yeah, is sort of conflicted about it. But it strikes me that in those situations where with these like celebrity or celebrity ish profiles there's a lot of the writing that's about like stretching time like you have this limited time scenic time with the people and then you have to elongate it so that it says something that it's more like a story and it's not just like okay she never said anything so now I'm fucked because there's no but you spend so
0: much time with them before you're with them you almost know the story before you meet them because a thing I like to do is not ask very many questions at first Uh because then you hear what people are trying to tell you before they forget you're a reporter because if you spend enough time with someone and you're cheerful enough and you're conversational enough. They sometimes do. Not very famous because you never get that much time with them. But Mm -hmm. like writers, other people, you hear what they want you to tell the world about them. And then you know everything you need to know because you know what they want people to think. And you could work backwards from there. Why Mm -hmm. do they want people to think that? And you go through their history because you've prepared very well. And you try to put together a narrative of, like, how did you end up being someone who felt defensive about this or who wanted the world to know about this yeah, and you watch them just through these eyes of like wondering why they're doing what they're doing and you can apply this rule to anyone um, you know you shouldn't do it in your marriage it's it's not the, it's not for the best you shouldn't do it with your kids but, but you can apply this to anyone and everyone is always sort of explaining themselves do you find that like yeah. everyone is always just like here's what I'm like and I'm the type of person who and we so badly want people to think something of us a particular thing about us that you have to ask yourself, why is that person saying what they're saying?
2: Mm -hmm. I actually found this thing that I wrote down, which was, I think it's from the Nicki Minaj thing, where you say, here was her answer to my crack initial question, which was, colon... How are you doing? So <laughs> that, was per- Mickey, Nick that
0: was not making Nicki Minaj. That was that was the UFC story. Yeah, that's right, yeah, right. yeah. But I
2: feel like there's this element of you as the as the reporter, right? Like you exist in the space of the story. Usually,
0: here's what I learned from writing personal essays. I learned that it wasn't that my um, experience was so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's that we're all sort of the same, and we all have the same. You know, the reason we all cry at the same movies, the reason we all like the same things is because they make us all feel a certain way. And that was the great lesson from writing all these personal essays and seeing how people related to them, even when I I could not see why they would relate to it. Mm. Suddenly I saw that they did, and I realized we're all the same. And so my job here is to be every reader and react not the way someone who is trying to be in the best relationship with a celebrity. I think there's a lot of that in right. celebrity like, profiles. That like be,
2: want to be their friend or, yeah, or like, want to hey, be cool.
0: Hey, hey, like, right. But your job is to be the reader and to react, but also to have a lot of compassion for why they're like that. It's very different to be a celebrity, but also you're a very different person if you're a celebrity. So you don't go in thinking, this person is like me. You go in... On behalf of all the people who are like you, and try to find some sort of general thing that you have in common Mm -hmm. and Nikki and I were just we were tired (laughs) we were so tired a lot lot on your plate I had just moved I had just moved and waited for an interview I was and she had just
2: been to a lot of fashion shows and parties I mean right but you know what
0: I don't know that she loved that I think we were both doing the same thing we were doing our jobs yeah
2: you write for these different publications often like with nine assignments at the same time and in some of them like with that piece, or uh, also in the pieces you, you did for Matter, yeah, they're, they're a little bit different. They're not all like celebrity. One of them is, but
0: the Britney story, the, yeah, well, the Britney Paula Dean is,
2: I guess she is, is, arguably yeah. right, famous. Right. In some of those, you're you're not making fun of. I wouldn't say that you explicitly make fun of things, but you are kind of like. Exposing the artifice in a way that's funny, like the artifice of their personas and what goes into making them these sort of made up people. But then you're also doing like a Cosmo cover in which, like, that's not in there no. at all. No. And
0: I'm a good freelancer. I know yeah. how to write for, I know what an editor expects of me. And at Matter, um, which was started by Mark Lotto and who is who's my editor there, I knew what he wanted, even though I'd, it was probably the most freeing and exciting experience for me as a writer because I'm a good freelancer in that I knew what a Cosmo cover story should look like. Yeah. I know what a, but th- when I was assigned the Britney story and the Pauline story, Matter didn't exist yet. But I knew Mark and I had gone back and forth enough to, that I knew what he liked in a story. And he had liked a story I'd done for the New York Times Magazine about Gabby Hoffman. Yeah,
2: it's a great story.
0: Which is a great story because of Adam Sternberg, by the way. Oh. It's, he, he he is the person. I did my first profile for him ever, my first profile. It was was on, that the
1: first one? It was, it was that the, was the second
0: one. It was Zosia Mamet was the first one. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. handed in this total piece of shit. And he very politely, like d piece of shit at it. It was amazing. And and it was such an easy way to learn how to do this. And seeing his notes and his reaction and he was just he's just so good at it. It's it's a like a sin that he's not editing anymore. Um while well,
2: he's writing he's
0: yeah, yeah. fiction. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. <laughs> his books are great, but but and his writing at, at New York is great. It's just devastating to me. It was it was it is tough to
2: lose a good editor. It that is. is not, like, there's not that many great editors out there. I feel like editing is... It's intuitive. a real skill. Yeah. 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 A...
0: Right. I, I've been really lucky with my editors, and the ones that I haven't been lucky with, I think, feel the same way about me. <laughs> and we don't really talk
2: anymore. But so when you got the matter assignments, you felt like you you were going to aim for what you did with that Gabby Hoffman profile.
0: What I learned through the, through the Gabby Hoffman profile was that it wasn't about Gabby Hoffman. Again, you can't let her be the story because what if she's not great she's great Mm -hmm. but what if she's not so then what's the story the story is this like Adam referred to as like an unfrozen caveman like she was in New York she left she came back and suddenly she's not this precocious rich not rich precocious like child of artists and that also isn't a thing anymore and how do you survive doing that and how is she going to figure this out without saying how is she going to figure this out and so that was the big picture you talk about Britney and what does Britney mean in the culture like that's the thing about the celebrity profile um, the way you don't let the celebrity be j- the only story is that there's the story of Britney, and then there's the story of the Britney Plex, right? And yeah. the business that <laughs> she has. All the people that are, are the on it,
2: concentric circles of yeah. people who are right. employed buy it in various ways, right? And then you get to you,
0: right? And I'm there too because I'm like this little vulture sitting there, like, tell me more, paying off like a busboy to tell me like where she is right now. <laughs> what does Britney mean to us? And then what does Britney mean to the world? And then. And then how do you—you've told a story um, about—I feel like this sounds pretentious, so, you know, but this—you've told a story about about the world and someone's place in it and what it says about us. And I think that's your job. Everyone has to say something about us. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to write about a celebrity unless— they tell you something about the culture, and that's something I get from my husband, who's a business, who was a business reporter, now a political reporter. But like, wh- what does this mean? What what does? Don't stop at who is this. It's wh- what does who she is mean. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: that makes sense. Yeah, and that was uh, that was in the Paula Deen one as well. It's sort of like right. th- That was a really interesting profile because everyone just sort of wrote her off. Like she said these racist things, and then she kind of like kicked off the Food Network, and then everyone said like, okay, well. She's out, but she's not. She's, she's not. like exists in this whole other world, the martyrdom, martyrdom industrial complex, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the martyrdom industrial, yeah. Where industrial she's complex. she's like. Not only surviving, but like thriving on the fact that she is this sort of like disgraced person and has this whole other community right. of people she speaks to, right. who actually love
0: her more because of what happened, right? And who will pay her, whereas we were never going to pay her in the first place. She wasn't talking to you. She was not talking to me, and she didn't talk to me. She did not talk to you. <laughs> she in did funny not talk ways. to me in so many ways. <laughs> but again, I had this like; those were such great experiences because I had this editor who was like proud of me at every turn and loved every sort of thought I sent him, even if he really didn't. But I like began to muster the confidence of someone who was thinking smart things. And so I got to write this story. It was very hard to write. The Britney story was the first one I wrote. And I wrote it in sort of the looming shadow of the very brilliant um, Britney write around that Vanessa Gregoriadis did. Uh-huh. There was not a day where I didn't think like, why am I doing this? this already exists but better but i wrote it because it was my job
2: well i love that story thank you thank you i mean that too was a write around in this oh like my God. she was there you were She there. was there but, yeah oh the other thing that's funny about that story is you talk about there's two other reporters there one from gawker On unpolydine clearly there to just make fun of the thing yeah and then did you read that story that was from... katie
0: weaver's story I and it was go really it. good really? it's real and you I know what that, yeah. i had a week hers came out before mine and i had a week where i was like why should we even publish <laughs> ours? Hers is so funny. But then, uh, actually, I noticed an exactly
2: inverse situation, which was you wrote a story for Grantland about Motley Crue, <laughs> yes. like declaring that they were never going to tour again. They were like signing these contracts, and you went to this like press conference, and I mean, you really did make fun of them. Like, I did. Like, that was
0: the that was the only time I've done that, and like, I really regret it.
2: You regret it? I regret it. This, well, I think this is the only is time I was A GQ story just came out.
0: I'm about to read it. I knew. Yeah.
2: The GQ story, I mean, to, to the earlier discussion about, like, certain outlets take, like, Cosmo takes a certain approach with celebrity profile that, like, GQ, you can open up a little more and, like, yeah. break the fourth wall, kind of, and, yeah. you know, make fun of the artifice of it. But, like, yours, your Grantland piece makes way more fun of, like, the whole idea of Motley Crue retiring than the GQ one does it like takes it a little more seriously they
0: were really mean to me <laughs> I, I mean that's what happened is that I watched as they were just mean to everyone and I left with this kind of disgust that I now know you never end with disgust you should always find some sort of, I think I did in the end find a way like it's really hard on these guys yeah like they they wanted to die young and they didn't and so now they have to grow old <laughs> and that sucks for them but they the, the whole day they were really they wouldn't look women in the eye they wouldn't like i heard some really off color jokes i i didn't leave with a good feeling and then and then i felt bad and then i published something mean about someone and you should never take someone's trust in you because there was trust. They let me in, not them. The, the yeah. public the
2: press conference.
0: <laughs> and, right? No, they let. No, I was there throughout the day. A fly, I was a fly on the wall the whole day, and I and I let. I was clever for the sake of being funny instead hmm. of, and I regret it. I do regret it. I regret being mean.
2: Did something lead you to regret it specifically? Like you heard from someone, or yeah. did just a certain point?
0: Yeah, I heard. I heard. Um, I heard from the publicist, and she was like, "I didn't know that this is what you would write." And there are two parts of that that's offensive to me because you because you're only saying that because i'm a woman
2: uh,
0: uh-huh, and you're also only say, you're saying that because i'm friendly and i'm smiley and I seem soft, but then again, if I'm friendly and smiley and soft seeming am I complicit in tricking people into thinking that that's i don't know I know that this is how I actually am i'm not putting on something i I am the way I am, but I also think that. You are in a position where you're supposed to be – you're supposed to, like, spot everyone a few points because they've agreed to be in the room with you. That said, I loved the story. I just regret being as – like, there are certain lines. Like, should I have called Vince Neil – should I have said he looks like a Brentwood housewife? No. <laughs> I mean, like,
2: is it inaccurate?
0: It's not inaccurate. It's completely accurate. But it was also mean. I now like to hope that I could be better than that, that I could be just as clever, not at someone's expense. Because there was this great scene where I, I I describe him doing that. And there he is. He's staring outside at the Hollywood Wax Museum. Like, you can't buy that kind <laughs> of poignance. And right below is where they... Um, they did the Don't Go Away Mad video, like, all those years ago. They're walking down the street, and it was just—and and and I wrecked the poignance with, like, a funny remark. Huh. I don't know. It's I don't hard know. to find—yeah, it.
2: Yeah, I guess— And it's, also, when I you're confronted that... by
0: someone, and someone's like, that was mean.
2: Yeah. But I don't like, know. I don't did... want to
0: be mean. I don't ever want to be mean. I think that you can be better than mean.
2: But you still want to be the person who calls out—I mean, the thing that was— that I felt like you were making fun of was that their whole thing was a charade. I mean, it was, they were sort of like, we don't want to be one of these rock acts that like keeps getting back together and then just tours to make money. And it's like,
0: as we go on our tour to make money. Yeah.
2: And just all had done it before many times. Right. They had. I mean,
0: but that's my job to point that out. Yeah. It is not my job to ridicule someone's appearance. Who has kept his hair long for personal <laughs> reasons?
2: So now uh, before we go, I want to ask you a couple things about about having this, like now you have New York Times Magazine and GQ. Yeah. But like how does that break down? Like are you do, are, do you have any are you tasked with
0: doing certain stuff for either one or like I pitch and I'm sometimes asked to do certain things. and I, I have not said no to anything, but I think that I'm very lucky to have great editors who know what I would be good at. And so they ask me to do certain things and they also listen to my pitches.
2: Do you have sort of any parallel ambitions to what you, you know, once had when you were sort of like doing personal essays? And you're like, now I want to do something else. Do you have that now? Like, you want to keep doing what you're doing or do you have this thought like, actually, I don't want to get stuck doing profiles. I want to do X.
0: So I see that I'm I'm very much stuck doing celebrity profiles and one of the reasons that having contracts was interesting for me is because the editors I have see what else see that I can apply these skills elsewhere. Mm-hmm. My goals right now, I was offered a book deal to write a book about something mm-hmm. and I thought about it and then I turned it down and I realized that like what I want to do is keep my contracts. I want to like earn the right to have had these contracts. Um, and maybe get them re-signed next year because that's how that works. That <laughs> <laughs> like the next year is breathing down your neck. Yes. And also um, a very important thing to remember. And I say this because I, I people sometimes a journalist will reach out to me and not really, especially um, like someone who has kids, will reach out to me and not really understand how I do it. And my answer is that my husband. After his last job, which is not the adage job, he was at Vulture for a while, took a long time to choose his next job because he wanted to go into political writing and Mm -hmm. we wanted to be on the East Coast. And that took a while to happen. And so he was like, I had a parent home with the children instead of, you know, a babysitter. And so I felt good. But I, I was not around like there's a year this that 2014 it came at the expense of my family and my friendships and maybe my cardiovascular health.
2: But <laughs> also, you were just on the road all I, the time.
0: I was just somewhere writing all the time and always on the road and eating room service.
2: You can never eat well on those reporting trips. No,
0: you can't. You can't, no matter where you go. And there's no such Like, if you're in Vegas long enough, you're like, I can't eat another steak. I can't eat another Caesar salad. Like, can someone give me a yogurt? But it also, like, it was hard work to make sure that we ended up my husband wanted a job doing what exactly what he's doing and he like we're all very happy now but it's hard it's been hard for me since i returned in august to figure out how to keep up my productivity yeah yeah i can imagine because now like there's homework to do and they know how to play board games and like you can't you can't, uh-huh, your way through board games the way you can through an episode of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, you know? <laughs> so uh, that's that's my next challenge, <laughs> is trying to raise my children and get them to stop calling other people mommy. The last thing I'm wondering
2: is, okay. do you still have the kind of like... Uh... 11th grade English teacher slash guy you went to school with who was a successful screenwriter. I mean, is that still in your head? Or do you, did you reach a point where you're sort of like, that's the I don't think about the motivating- them
0: anymore. I mean, despite how quickly I brought them up. <laughs> I don't think about we them anymore. We were, we were reviewing history. Um I don't bring them up very often. But sometimes someone will say to me like, oh, so you're like, what are you doing now? You're like a mommy blogger, right? And I'll feel like, Yes. Like, now I'm at the point where I just say, yes, I'm a mommy blogger. And then within a week, that person will have found, like, a three-year-old story I wrote for good housekeeping while they're getting their nails done. Uh-huh. And be like, oh, no, you're not. You're, like, <laughs> you're writing for magazines now. I don't disparage mommy bloggers. I just am not one. Um, and also think that people shouldn't call each other mommy unless they've been given birth to by that Person.
2: They definitely should not assume that if you are a mother and you have written something, you are thereby must be a mommy. Right? Blogger. Like, Nobody should be, think that. I mean, but you could be. The chances are actually quite small. That quite that's quite small. You're doing. Yeah. I know
0: a lot of mothers. I don't know that many bloggers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, we're going to stop it right there. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks this for has been a pleasure.
2: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Taffy for coming in. Isn't Taffy amazing? She's amazing. Uh, Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss Berman, as always. Uh, Thanks to our intern, Rachel Mabe. And thanks to our sponsors, uh, lynda.com. Get out there and improve yourself, people. Go to slash longform and you can take some courses, get better at things. And when you do, you can tell people about it with tiny letter. All right, we'll see you next week.